0: On the 9th of September, 1993, which was one month, 30 years ago, nearly to the day, the late Yasser Arafat, the chairman of the then PLO, that is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, signed a letter to Yitzhak Rabin, the then Prime Minister of Israel. And he said this, Dear Mr. Prime Minister, The signing of the Declaration of Principles marks a new era in the history of the Middle East. In firm conviction thereof, I would like to confirm the following PLO commitments. One, the PLO recognizes the right to the State of Israel to exist in peace and security. Two, the PLO commits itself to the Middle East peace process and to a peaceful resolution of the conflict between the two sides. Three, the PLO considers that the signing of the said declaration constitutes a historic event, inaugurating a new epoch of peaceful coexistence, free from violence and all other acts which endanger peace and stability. That very same day, Arafat received this reply. Dear Mr. Chairman, I wish to confirm to you that in light of the PLO commitments included in your letter, the government of Israel has decided to recognize the PLO as a representative of the Palestinian people and commence negotiations with the PLO within the Middle East peace process. Four days later, one of the most historic and iconic events took place in the early 1990s. In the South Lawn of the White House, the, these two sworn enemies, the then leader of the PLO and the Prime Minister of Israel, met to sign a peace treaty, which was known as the Oslo Accord. And there, after they put pen to paper, the then Prime Minister of the United States nudged these two sworn enemies together, to sign and seal this agreement with a famous handshake. In 1993, the image of that handshake went viral across all news channels and across it was the front page of every newspaper. It captured powerfully the hopes and the desires of every Israeli and Palestinian for peace in their war-torn part of the world. In fact, so powerful it was that one year later, both these men were awarded with the Nobel Peace Prize. And yet, here we are today, one month, 30 years on. And that famous peace treaty, that historic handshake, a gift of the Nobel Peace Prize is all now but a dim and distant memory. I suspect that most of us are still coming to terms with the scenes that we are beholding on our television screens with what is going on in Israel and Gaza Strip right now. And in no way do I want to downplay the reality of what is happening there. It is so heartbreaking, so distressing. But let's be frank over the last two decades or so, is it not the case that we've become really accustomed to seeing images on our screens of blown-up cities, of abandoned cars, of tanks and soldiers, of wounded men, women and children in makeshift hospital beds, of hearing the debt distressing reports of people being kidnapped and tortured. Let, let's be honest, this is becoming an all too familiar sight in the 21st century. And is it not the case that what is happening right now in Israel and Palestine is actually just a tiny snapshot of the reality that's actually happening all across the world? In Yemen, in Nigeria, in Afghanistan in Sudan, in Ukraine, in Libya, in Myanmar, in the Congo. Now, I don't say any of that to downplay the reality of what is going on in Israel and Palestine. I say all of that to remind us that we live in a war-torn, broken, and fractured world. I know you didn't come to church this morning to leave more depressed than you've arrived. The reason I begin with laying this out Is because this sets the scene for the glorious reality that we're going to behold in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. You see, this passage speaks to us of the glorious good news that Christ Himself is our peace. And Christ Himself came into this world 2,000 years ago to reconcile to God sinful humanity and sinful humanity in Him together. This passage declares the glorious good news that there is no more division in Christ Jesus, nor Jew, nor Gentile, male, nor female, slave or free, but all have been made one in Christ Jesus who believe in him. You know the most amazing thing about this passage is that it presents to us the greatest peace mission that's ever taken place. You see, this peace treaty wasn't signed and sealed with a handshake. This was a peace treaty that was signed and sealed with the precious blood of Jesus. This peace mission has been able to deliver on what every other peace treaty has failed to deliver from the beginning of humanity that is eternal, enduring, lasting peace. And so church, my prayer for us this morning is that As we consider this passage, is that our minds, which are filled right now, I suppose, with death and destruction, division and disunity, that our minds this morning would be filled with this beautiful image of the one who is the Prince of Peace and the beautiful community he came to make, the Church of Jesus Christ, which showcases supernaturally unity in the midst of spectacular and unbelievable diversity. And my prayer is is that we consider Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 22 is that it would reignite in us a love for Jesus, a love for the church, and that we would all be eager to go forth from here today to proclaim this gospel of peace because our world desperately needs it. And we'd go forth from here eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because our lives, we desperately need it. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. for God by the Spirit. Amen, and thanks be to God for this reading from his holy word. If you've ever read through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you might recall that at the end of chapter 1, Paul prays, Pastor Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians to know the hope to which they've been called. And then he goes on and he prays that they would also know better the God who has called them, that they would know him more. Now, as Paul enters into chapter two, he's not just content to pray this, he's passionate to explain better the gospel. And so chapter two, we have one of the most glorious explanations of the gospel found anywhere in Scripture. And in verses 1 through 10, Paul tells what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He says what we once were and what we've now become. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we were once dead in our sins and transgressions, but we have been raised. We are now alive. We are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. He says to us, we were once objects of God's wrath, but now we are objects of God's love. He says to us, we were once those who were enslaved, following the passions and the cravings of our sinful nature, but now we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works and to walk in those good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And then we come to the second part of chapter 2, and Paul's not content to just give us this explanation of the gospel that explains our personal reconciliation to God, the, the vertical. Paul wants us to have a comprehensive understanding of the gospel, and so in verses 11 through 22, he now unpacks for us how God has not just reconciled us to himself, but how God in the gospel has reconciled us to one another. If you understand the gospel, you understand that it's not just about you and your relationship with God. It's also about you and your relationship to God's people. And so we have this glorious unpacking of our horizontal relationship in verses 11 to 22. And Paul uses the exact same technique. Once you are this, but now you become this. We're going to look at verses 11 through 22 under three simple headings. We were once far from God, heading one. But now we've been brought near to God, heading two. And finally, and now, God is within us, heading three. So heading one, once we were far from God. Read verses 11 and 12 with me. Therefore, remember that at one time you were, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In verses 11 and 12, Paul tells these Ephesian Christians what they formerly were before they came to Christ. Now to grasp what Paul is saying in these verses, we we need to enter into the Jewish mindset. Of the first century. You see, for every Jew, there were only two categories of people. There was them, God's chosen people, the circumcision. And then there was those who weren't Jews, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. There were only two categories of people for the first century Jew. And the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century was fierce. So fierce that we read in the book of Acts, it threatened to undo the early church, Acts chapter 15. I'm sure you've heard this before, but when, when Jews thought of Gentiles, they thought of them in terms of being wild, untamed, not domesticated animals. In particular, Gentiles were dogs. The Jew used to say, the only reason God made the Gentiles was to feel the fires of hell. A Jewish man would wake up every morning and say, God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile. There was this deep division. This deep division. Hostility that existed between the first century Jew and their Gentile neighbors. And and Paul makes mention of this fact in verse 11. If you look down at verse 11, you'll see that the word the uncircumcision is inverted comrades. See, this was the derogatory nickname for the Gentiles the uncircumcised. Do you remember in the Old Testament? It's a war scene. It's David, the young shepherd boy, and he comes up to the army of Israel. And there's Goliath, the Philistine. And David looks at him and he's hearing him taunting the Israelites. And David famously says, in essence, why are we letting this uncircumcised Philistine talk to us like this? In other words, David reminds his fellow Jews that this geezer Goliath, he's no one of us. He's he's uncircumcised. He's not one of God's chosen people. We are the people. He stands no chance. Now what is really interesting is that the Jews had this constant temptation, especially in the first century, to look down their noses at their gentile neighbors. Unless we stand in judgment over them, let's just do a little heart examination, a little bit of soul searching. As we look into the mirror of God's word, do you realize that the sinful tendency of all of our hearts is to do the exact same thing? To look down our noses at other people? Do you realize that we're more like the Jews than we realize, even though we're Gentiles? (laughs) Because we share the same sinful heart. We we sometimes get so puffed up by our own self-righteousness, our own self-importance, that we can have the exact same feeling of superiority that we see on display here. I'm not casting any judgments on anyone here, and I don't know what your heart's been like, but as you've watched the scenes on the TV this week, has there been moments where you've been tempted to pick sides? And look down your nose and say, I'm not with those people at all. They're scum. They're wicked. They're evil. And to stand with one side and say, no, no, they're the, they're, they're, they're the good. And, and it works both ways. And you know, the sad thing is, is that we, and we often stand in judgment, self-righteous judgment over Other people, you know, the sad reality is we're just like the Jews. We base it on externals. Do you you notice that Paul says in verse 11, he says that these, the circumcision, they had their circumcision by the hands of men. You see, circumcision was an outward sign given to Jewish men, but was intended to point them to the need that they needed heart circumcision. And the problem with the Jews is they missed the point of the sign so often and they focused on the outward sign and they made that the be-all uh, the, be, the be all and end-all. When their magnificent obsession should have been, they want their hearts to be circumcised, not by the hands of men, but by the hand of Almighty God. And it was because they made their judgment on outward appearance that they lived with a self-righteousness. The tragedy is we can be just like these Jews. But Paul, actually these verses, he's not reminding us that we're supposed to be like the Jews, he's reminding us to remember those of us who were not born Jewish, who were born Gentiles in the flesh, meaning by birth, to remember what we were like before we came to Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, there are no commands, no imperatives, except here in verse 11 and 12. All the pet imperatives come in chapter 4 onwards, but here in verses 11 and 12, there is an imperative. Therefore, remember. Chapter tw- uh, verse 12, remember. Here's the command. Those of you who are Gentiles, that is probably the majority of us in this room, remember what you were like before you came to Christ. And Paul's big point is, you we're far off from God. And Paul gives in verse 12 this devastating description of what we were once like. It's absolutely dire. John Stott summarizes it like this. They were Christly, Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless you know when he says christless there in the context of ephesians that honestly is the worst place you could be in because to be in christ means that you've got everything every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms so to be without christ to be christless is to have nothing They were stateless, friendless. That is, they had no share in the people of God and they had no share in God's promises. They were hopeless and godless. Not to say that they never had hope in their lives in general, but they had no hope of life beyond the grave. No hope of eternal life. And when he says without God, he doesn't mean that they didn't have their own gods. Yeah, they had their own gods, false gods, but they did not know the one true and living God. And Paul is saying, "Remember, this is what you were before you came to Christ." And if I could summarize that description in a word, it's hell—Christless, peopleless, without purpose, promise, without hope, without God. That's hell. What we were before we came to Christ, was hell bound. Now why does Paul want us to remember this? Well, because when you remember this, it will kill any self-righteousness. It will rob you of any pride, or arrogance. It will steal any grounds you have for boasting in yourself. And on the flip side of it, it will fill you with joy and love when you come to understand that what you once were, you are no more because of Christ. Paul says, remember, this is what you once were. Church, the day we fail to remember what we were once like, far off is the day we fail to see God for the awesome God that he is and the day we fail to under grace, understand grace for how amazing it is. The day we fail to remember who we once were will be the day we forget how awesome our God is and how amazing the grace of God is. But let me take this further. The day we fail to remember who we once were will also be the day we fail to realize that those around us who are without Christ, and that might be you, it's the day we fail to remember that they're in desperate need of the gospel of grace. Can I? Can you indulge me for a moment? Let's do a thought experiment. Imagine you and I had the ability, as Christians, as ourselves right now, to jump in a time machine and go back and meet our pre-converted self. Lost in our sin, dead in our transgressions. And if you were able to meet your pre-Christian you, here's the question. Would you consider yourself too lost to be found? Would you look at yourself with too much self-righteousness to extend grace? Would you be willing to reach out to your old self with the grace of the gospel? Maybe I can ask another question. Would you even visit the place you would find your old self? Would you even prioritize the time to spend with your own self? The day you forget what you once were is the day you forget how awesome your God is and how amazing the grace is and the grace that our world desperately needs to hear about. That's why Paul says, remember. Now, having remembered... We come to verse 13. So that that is what we once were. Verse 13, now listen to the good news of who you now are. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul wants us to see Christ changed absolutely everything. Christ, in coming to this world, changed everything. And the wonder of the gospel is this. To bring us near to God, Christ had to leave heaven and come near to us in the incarnation. Christ had to become man. Christ had to be born as a man under the law. Christ had to grow up in the sin-sick world. Christ had to experience and witness the reality of hostility and division and separation and alienation and even rejection from his family and from the people he came to save. In fact, you know the stunning irony is Christ would be killed as a result of Jew and Gentile uniting together. Putting aside their hostility for a moment so that they could crucify the Lord of glory, which is a staggering reality of the wickedness and the depravity of man. God in Christ came near so that you and I could be brought near to God. And no the wonder of the gospel doesn't stop there. How did he bring us near? Well, Paul says in verse 13 by the blood of Christ, shorthand sure for sin, by means of the cross, by means of laying down his life. Remember what Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was forsaken so that you and I could be forgiven. Christ was condemned so that you and I would never face the condemnation of Almighty God. Christ went to hell, far away with our sins, so that we could be brought very close into relationship with God. And Paul's most apt way of describing who Christ is and what Christ has done for us is there in verse 14. For Jesus himself is our peace. Peace is not a process. Peace is a person. Peace is Jesus. You know what our world is longing for? You know what our world is desperately looking for? It's Jesus. Jesus. He came on this great mission, this peace mission, and he signed and sealed with his blood, peace with God for sinners and peace for us with one another. Now, how did he do it? We'll we'll read on in verse 14. For Jesus himself is our peace who made us both one. How did he make us both one? Having broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. So there's this great division, there's this great wall of hostility that existed between both Jew and Gentile and Christ. How did he make us one? Well, he removed the wall. Now, I won't go into all of this, but suffice to say this, you, you remember in the, in the temple, there was a curtain that separated the Jews from entering into the Holy of Holies. They could be in the Holy Place, but they couldn't be in the holy the Holy of Holies. That's not the only thing that Christ destroyed in his death. There was also a wall. There was literally a wall in the temple that separated the Gentiles from coming near. It wasn't a wall that God said, you need to build it and keep them out, but it was a wall that set the people of God apart and to enter into the the near place of God. And metaphorically, in his death, Jesus Christ abolished that wall. He abolished it. He destroyed it so that both Jew and Gentile could come near in him. So both Jew and Gentile could go into the Holy of Holies with one another. Through his body, he killed that dividing wall of hostility. Look at verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. I love the gospel maths. One, the Jewish people, plus one, the Gentile people, equals one new man. Tell that to your maths teacher. Gospel math is this glorious Jesus, in his death at the cross, took two divided people and made them into one new humanity, one new entity, the body of Christ, the family of faith, the church. How did he do it? He reconciled both to himself. That's verse 16. How also did he do it? Verse 17, he went and preached peace to those who were far off, and he preached peace to those who were near. (laughs) And I love this, right? How did Jesus preach peace to to the Gentiles in Ephesus? Like, we know the gospel records, we know the book of Acts. Jesus never went to Ephesus. How did Jesus preach peace to them? Through his people. How does Jesus bring his peace to bear upon this world? Through you and me. When I preach, he preaches. He preaches peace to those near and to those far. In verse 18, here is the most spectacular, glorious reality. They both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the one Father. That's what it means for him to be the peace of God, is that he brings us a peace with him, the triune God. And our unity to one another is defined by our unity to Christ. I chanted somebody this week, and they were telling me, reminding me that there's a pastor in the north of Israel. He's an Arab. He's a Palestinian. And he's preaching... The Gospel of Peace, in Hebrew, to Jewish Christians and to Jewish people. I was listening to talk about a friend who ministers in Ukraine. He's presently not in Ukraine, but he told me that one of the most effective evangelists and pastors in the midst of this war is a Russian-born, Russian-speaking brother who goes in and out of Ukraine. To proclaim the glorious message of peace. Like, where else would you get that? Where else would you see that? Only in the one. The one new humanity. In the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that is how we can see hostile Jews being reconciled to hostile Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, this this has got huge implications for us. Are you troubled by the fact that we live in a broken and fractured world? I hope you are. So what's your response? So what is it you're passionate about? What is it you're going to do? You're going to pray to the God of peace. And you're going to proclaim the gospel of peace. Because it's the only thing that can do something about this broken and fractured world. Jesus has broken down the walls of hostility in order to build up his father's house and to fill it with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And to make them one. So we've thought about how we were once far off from God. We've thought about how he's brought us near to God. But listen. Paul says, you need to know God more. You need to know the gospel more. This is what you now need to know. And you really, really need to know this. Like this is going to make you sing, dance, shout, scream. This is going to put a skip into your step when you leave from here. The God who takes us who were once far off and brings us near through the blood of Christ, that same God comes and he dwells within us. Read verses 19 to 22 with me. So then. This is what happens. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Paul rounds off this section and here's the good news of the gospel. He brings us who are far off near to himself so that he can come and live. In us. That is the m- wonderful, glorious work of the cross. Not just us reconciled to God, not just us reconciled to one another, but God living in us. Now, 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 Paul is so keen that we see with our eyes just how amazing this transformation is. He says, See, see you who are once far off, you who are aliens and separated from the commonwealth of Israel, now look at who you are. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. Do you know who you are? You are fellow citizens. That is, you belong to the nation of God's people. You're not a second-class citizen. You're not someone with dubious immigration papers. No. You're a fellow citizen with all of God's people. But you're not just part of the nation. You're not just part of the new humanity. Listen, you are part of the family. The blood that was shed on the cross has brought you together with brothers and sisters in Christ. And the blood that was shed on the cross is thicker than the blood that runs, the biological blood that runs in your veins. You're now part of the family of God. That is, the, you now have one father, one big brother. Man, this is incredible, right? You've got the same inheritance. Jew and Gentile, same inheritance. Jesus. The Holy Spirit, who's a deposit and the guarantee of our inheritance. And then thirdly, this is this is what it's all been building to. You're not just part of the nation, you're not just part of the family, but listen, you're part of the temple not the physical, literal temple. The temple that God's always been building since the Garden of Eden. That was the plan. It was a garden temple. And and, and here's the reality is that we're now living stones in the temple of God. We're built upon the foundation of the scripture, the apostles and the prophets. We're united to the cornerstone. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're being built up together with one another. We're this united, diverse people, all living in dependence on each other. And what we do as we're being built up into the temple is we literally are the dwelling place of God. Time doesn't allow us, but if you were to go to Exodus chapter 15 and you were to read Miriam and Moses' song as they left Egypt, do you know how that song ends? Do you know the climax of that song? It's crazy, right? The tabernacle's not even been given to them. The instructions will be given to Moses at Sinai. David and Solomon's temple's not yet built. Herod's temple's not built. And then the Miriam and Moses song, they sing about the fact that God will one day build his temple. And his temple will be his people. You and I, you and I, that the, the, the climax, the pinnacle of salvation is that you and I, who are once far off, who have been brought near, we are now made the dwelling place of God. Now here is why this is so important. Because do you know what our world, our watching world desperately needs to see? is the manifold wisdom of God on full display. I've got a point of application, and it involves you doing something. I want you to look right and look at the people sitting next to you. I want you to look left and look at the people sitting on your left-hand side. Look backwards. Do it. Like, Like, you don't realize this, but you don't know what you're looking at. You're not just looking at people who are different from you, different colors, different sizes, different socioeconomic backgrounds. You're looking at the dwelling place of God. You're looking at the miracle of salvation. You're looking at what your glorious end is. This is a taste of the new heaven and the new creation to come. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation dwelling together as one. In this broken and fractured world, you won't find that anywhere else than in the church. And our world needs to see this. How will this world know that there is a savior? Because of our love one for the other. And so application is we need to stop with our petty squabbles as the people of God, not just locally, but nationally and corporately. And we need to stop with having differences with each other because brothers and sisters, they do not even matter in the grand scheme of things. We are one in the bond of peace. We must make every effort to maintain that. Because in the mission of God, this is how God makes known his son. That preaches. And that is how Jesus preaches in his church. Let's pray. God, what is there to say but hallelujah? Praise the Lord. You and you alone are worthy for all that you've done. Thank you for taking us who were once far off and taking those who were near and bringing us together and making us one through the death of Christ on the cross. And God, truly thank you Thank you for coming and making your dwelling place in us. Thank you for giving us a taste of the new creation even this morning. And we pray that you would use us then as we go from here to pray, to preach, and to display the power of the gospel of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.